Thank you so much, Gospel Choir. The word of the Lord says in Revelation chapter 12, 11, that they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, the sound of their praise, that in the midst of all that's happening, you lift up this song, blesses all of our hearts. Dalton and Rosalie share with us today some news that Felipe is off the ventilator. And that his numbers and blood pressure and heartbeat and oxygen levels all look perfect. That he no longer has pneumonia, that he's off of the antibiotics, and that Dalton asked him to respond with his hand, and three times he pushed on his father's hand in response to his dad. <laughs> try getting that text before you stand up. I challenge you to try hearing that song and getting that text right before you stand up to say things. The God who continues to walk us through step by step, moment by moment, is leading this family. In every circumstance that looks impossible, they keep walking forward by faith. And their faith, their testimony, their triumph, the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony keeps inspiring all of us. So I invite you to keep praying for Felipe and for Dalton and for Rosalie as they celebrate each step that God has been good to their son and will hold their son. And yes, if you haven't been here the last two weeks, he was in a motorcycle accident and has been in a coma for these weeks, for three weeks. And so being able to respond to his dad with his hand, we praise the Lord. We praise the Lord. Our Lord and our God, you are most worthy of our praise. We pause right now to lift up praises from each of our hearts. Each one of us is walking through on our own journey, and yet it is a shared journey as well. And we're blessed because the people of God have gathered today to praise you in the midst. Right here. Some I saw raising their hands, some I saw lifting their voices, and I know some of their story of what they're going through, and yet... We, the people of God, raise up praise to you because you are worthy. So I pray that you would strengthen each heart, that you would give strength and courage and hope and grace for the journey. We thank you, Jesus, in the name of our risen and our soon-coming Lord. Amen. Have you ever received a message right on time? right on time, like just what just happened. Really though, this week there's been a lot of that. Someone was there with me and they said that someone sent them a card and it was like they hesitated, they had it on their desk for weeks, but then they sent it and it was right on the exact day they needed it. Someone else said they received a letter in that same way. For me, it was a phone call two times this week, just at the moment that I needed it. Have you re received a text message right at the time when the Lord knew you needed that encouragement? I want to challenge you to think of this letter 
to this church as God's message right on time. Because we know the scripture says that the Lord is the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. That this God of all grace and God of all mercy steps forward. And these words are in red in the book of Revelation too. That these words are from Jesus to the church of Thyatira. As we continue on in our sermon series, that this message, though it might be challenging and you might not understand the context or the people that it's spoken to, we're going to go into that a little bit today. Hear this as a message right on time for the people of God. A message from a loving God, a message from a grace-filled God who sends to them what they need to live where they live. Because we hold both realities that this is a message that is timeless for us right now and that this message had a context and a place and a people to whom it was sent. And so in the book of Revelation, these Revelation 2 and 3, where we're at with these seven letters to seven churches, we hear in this context that Jesus speaks of who he is. Jesus speaks of the character of God and it meets the need of the people. Jesus also shares affirmations with the people of God, rebukes, turn from where you are and follow me. And then finally, these letters contain a promise. With few exceptions, these four elements are present in these letters to the churches of Revelation. So today, Thyatira, our fourth church that we look at together. And I want to invite you to take a little bit of a whirlwind tour because you need to be able to picture yourself back there. Last week we looked at Pergamum, right? A very influential city. Ephesus, same deal. Influential. You look at that tower, that library in Ephesus and you get the grandeur and the how many scrolls were in that place and it's amazing. Thyatira is the opposite of that. Thyatira was situated in a valley connected that, with two other valleys. There was no natural fortification. Although at the time there was a Roman garrison situated there, it was only to protect Pergamum. Not to actually keep the city safe, but to delay the invaders long enough so that Pergamum, the capital city of far more importance, could be protected. These people knew that to the government and to the economy, they were dispensable. Have you ever felt that way before? This is Jesus' words to the people who were considered to be dispensable of that day. In classical times, Thyatira stood on the border between Lydia and Mycenae, famous for dying for the indigo trade. Among the ancient ruins of the city, there were so many inscriptions that have been found relating to the guilds of the day. These were the places that were able to send the different things to the different parts of the Roman provinces of Asia. You can see where they're situated right there in Thyatira, the protection for Pergamum. The inscriptions of the guilds were for wool workers, linen workers, makers of outer garment, garments, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, tent makers, weavers, bronze smiths. We have inscriptions from these trade guilds. They were situated in such a way that they would sell their wares and that it would continue on to the city that was the capital at the time. If you remember Lydia, Lydia that Paul met in Philippi and then she was a convert, one of the first converts on Paul's second missionary journey to Thyatira. In Acts chapter 16, it says this of Lydia. 
it says this of Lydia. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth, the indigo trade, those who are dyeing fabrics. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. This is who Thyatira was. Now, these guilds were like trade unions. You needed to be a part of them in order to do your trade. So if you were a good leather worker, you worked with bronze, you would be a part of the trade guild so that you could sell your wares and make a living for your family. Now, where it differs from the trade unions of our day is that you have to understand about the culture that uh, the politics and religion were completely mixed. So these trade guilds would have a god that was like their patron god, their mascot, and that you would be a part of worshiping that god if you were a part of that trade guild. And so when they find inscriptions from those who are a part of the indigo trade or those who are a part of the leatherworking trade, they would also see the association between the gods that those Christians were torn between, that they wanted to make a living and use their gifts and they wanted to be a part of this, but at the same time, they felt torn with staying faithful to Christ. So this was the tension and the pressure that they lived with as believers there in Thyatira. Let's hear the word of the Lord to these believers there. It says in verse 18 of Revelation chapter two, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. I will repay each of you for according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. I will not impose any other burden on you except that you hold to what you have until I come. To those who are victorious and do my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. They will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give them the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, some of you might be wondering, where is the good news in that? Just wait. First, we see the picture of Christ. The picture of Christ which speaks to their context and their situation. It's separated into two parts. First, verse 18 says, the Son of God. The Son of God, this is the only place in Revelation where this title is given to Christ. It comes straight from Psalm 2, verse 7. 
The context of the psalm is, that, and all through the gospels, of course, too, the context of this psalm is that the kings and the rulers of the earth plot against the Lord and his anointed. It's nothing short of a satanic rebellion against God, but God promises that God's son has authority over the world. God will make all nations his inheritance, the ends of the earth his possession. When the church in Thyatira heard the name Son of God, they would have been reminded immediately of Christ's ultimate authority, even as they lived in a world hostile to him. In Matthew 28, 18, it says, Jesus says himself, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. This isn't a question, it's a statement. It's a timely message for those there in Thyatira who needed to remember who is really in control, that they can understand who this sovereign God is. The second part of the revelation is this description of his appearance. Verse 18 says that his eyes are like a flame of fire and his feet of burnished bronze. This comes from Daniel chapter 10, verse 6. Daniel sees an image of a man who tells him that kings and nations would terrorize and persecute the people of God. And Daniel was not to fear. How could he hear this and face this but not fear? Because although the kings and the peoples of the earth were hostile to the people of God, Christ is sovereign. So this image of flaming eyes, this image of God who is penetrating, who sees all, imagine yourself as people who feel on the edges. Imagine yourself as people who feel disconnected from ways to support your family and to have your livelihood. Now imagine how this could be received as good news. There are all sorts of places in scripture that talk about the eyes of God watching, but let's look at two. Jeremiah has one, and and Hebrews chapter four has another. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. Now, Hebrews chapter four, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to him, the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, some of you, I I know because last week some of you talked to me that perhaps this is the first time you're hearing from Revelation a message that doesn't cause you fear. I encourage you to think about the eyes of God watching you as being good news, that you are a people that are going through something and no one knows the extent of what you're facing, but knowing God's eyes are on you is a comfort to you. So the opening part of this letter is the Son of God with eyes blazing and with feet of burnished bronze, which was the hardest metal they knew of at the time and often symbolized judgment. Here he is, and you're not unseen. God says, I see you. I see you. I see your struggle. I see you. I see what you're going through, and I see what you've been through. So this was a message not of like, ah, he sees me. there's no hiding. This was a message of, he sees me. God sees you. God sees you. And so this characteristic of God would have been so captivating and so telling, the blazing eyes that see the God who comes, not with judgment that scares the people of God, but with judgment that says, I am making all things right. That right now you're struggling in this particular way, but God promises I am the one who comes to make things right. 
And so into the situation your family is facing or your health or the crisis that you're in, you can remember that God is the one who makes things right. And this is our God. This is the one who affirms them. Christ, the God, the, the God with blazing eyes, says, I see you. You're a loving church. You're a serving church. You're a faithful church. You're a growing church. Their patience and their works were seen by God. And so God affirms them. Now, we could spend longer time there, but for sake of time, we're going to move on because as one commentator points out, perhaps their greatest strength was also their greatest weakness because patient endurance frequently comes with a posture of being able to put up with or tolerate things sometimes longer than what God intends. And so despite the growth and apparent faithfulness, the love and the ministry of the church, they were being misled by someone in their midst. This person Jesus calls Jezebel was claiming to speak for God, calling herself a prophet, but she was misleading people. At its basic, a prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God. They don't have the authority themselves. They get a word from God and they speak it or they read the word from God, but they're never to contradict God. And so this person was actually speaking in contradiction to God, but claiming that they were speaking the words of God. Friends, this book of Revelation reminds us too today, this is a word for us today. I don't want you to go along with what you hear here. I don't want you to go along with what you hear from each other or what you read. God has given us minds to discern. And so he's reminding these people, in Thessal- uh, these people here in Thyatira to be discerning. Just because you hear it, it doesn't mean it's God's will or God's way. She's claiming it's from God, but it is not from God. So what's wrong with this? Well, it says in verse 20, that Jezebel was leading people to practice fornication and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, oftentimes, it doesn't mean necessarily, it could have been, but it doesn't mean it's necessarily to do with sexuality, but that there was a a way that God was calling them to follow after God, and they were instead following after another God. And so thinking of the context in Thyatira, it's likely that this prophetess was teaching that it was all right to just go along with it, God wants you to survive. God wants you to have a livelihood. So just bend your knee before the God that your trade guild has you bend your knee before. Just go along with it. Just, it's okay. We live by the grace of God, so just go ahead and participate in the idolatrous worship that occurs in those guild meetings because you know who God is anyway. That's at least one possibility for what these people were facing And this prophet was claiming that God was okay with it. So last week we looked at Balaam and Balak and where they were at in the Old Testament and why they were drawing on this language. This week, who is Jezebel anyway? It's this drawing back on the Old Testament again. She was a queen of Israel during the time of Elijah the prophet. She was married to Ahab, the king of Israel. And he was turned towards Baal and Asherah through her that her first official act recorded in scripture was to kill the prophets of the Lord in 1 Kings 17.4. She was no seductress. She was actually quite blatant about what she was doing. She was very, very clear that she was going to replace the worship of God with the worship of Baal and Asherah. 
You remember Elijah was happy to face 850 prophets on that mountain, but when Jezebel was after him, he wanted to die and he ran and was scared for his life. This is who she was. So God is using this drawback in the letter to Jezebel of the Old Testament. Now, this prophet in Thyatira was similar to this. She's saying, it's okay. You can go along with this. It's okay to worship other gods again, just like the Baals and the Asherah poles, that you can also be a part of this. It's okay. Beware of anyone who says that you can use the ways of the world to do what God has called you to do. The work of God does not require the ways of the world. What do I mean? Well, first, in this context of Thyatira, Jezebel was teaching that something God called evil could be used for good. You can worship these gods as long as it provides for your family or gives you a living. What does this look like in our lives today? Well, each of us has to know what that looks like, but some that could be. If I cheat to get ahead as long as I pass the class or get into the school that I want, can I honor God with my career? Everybody has to compromise, don't we? It's okay to play the company games and politics as long as it gets me where I need to be. This is just something I do to de-stress, we might say. We might find ourselves excusing behavior that God says is dishonoring and not what we're called to. Second, the doctrine of Jezebel deludes people into believing that they're right. We find this with Ahab, the king, who turns to Micaiah, and he asks him, should I invade Ramoth Gilead? And he says, I want to know, and Micaiah says no, God says no, but all the other prophets, 1 Kings 22 says, attack, O king, and be victorious, for the Lord will get it into the king's hand. They said themselves blatantly, this is what the Lord says. So apparently they said it in the name of the Lord, and sure enough, Micaiah was right that it did not come true. Ramoth Gilead was uh, the place where Ahab died, and the army was routed. The one who is the way, the truth, and the life searches hearts. As C.S. Lewis puts it, he says that God is not the doddering grandfather who fondly says boys will have their fun, even though it makes them less than they should be. He says, God's intent is for our patient endurance to be coupled with holiness, not that it comes from us, but from Christ. You see, they're not mutually exclusive. This isn't a works-based faith. We cannot do anything on our own. But Christ in us calls us to something more rich and fulfilling, calls us to a life of trust. Now, finally, the promise. The promise is remarkable because God promises the overcomer two things. God promises that the overcomer will have the authority of Christ, to share in the authority with Jesus. This comes from Psalm 2, 8 and 9. And then God says, those who overcome will be given the morning star. Revelation 22, verse 16, identifies Jesus himself as the morning star. This promise is that Christ himself will be given to them, the greatest reward of them all. You see, what I love about the book of Revelation is that Jesus is always found in the middle of it. <laughs> that in Revelation chapter four and Revelation five and all throughout the book, that there he is in the middle. There's the lamb, there's the lion, there's Jesus in the middle of it all. 
right there in the center of it. And so the promise to these people who feel on the edges, these promise to people feel, who feel torn between these things, is that I will give you the morning star, the bright and shining light of Jesus. God himself will be given to you. I love this promise and this verse because they felt unseen. And so having the God come with eyes blazing fire would have been good news to them because God sees them. God knows them. And God promises to give them the bright and morning star to light the way. It's a story that is worth repeating a story of a child in the second story of their house as the flames are leaping up and they realize that they can't get out. Their father is down below and says, you're going to have to jump. You're going to have to come to me because you can't get out any other way. And the child calls out, but I can't see you. I can't see you. And the father calls out in response, but I see you but I see you. Jump to me. I see you. God sees you. God saw the people in Thyatira. God saw what they were going through. God saw what was at work against them. And God sees you too. God says, as you persevere, you will join me, Jesus says, in my authority. As you persevere, you will have me, the bright and morning star, shining in your life. And so we're reminded at the close of this letter to Thyatira of the victory in Jesus. That we come to this table today, and as we're preparing to come, I invite my pastoral colleagues to join me here, that we come to the table of the bright and morning star. That we come to the table of the God who sees you the God who knows, the God who says, yeah, you don't see me all the time, but you can jump, you can trust me, because these arms that were spread out on Calvary are the same arms ready to catch you, the same arms ready to hold you and sustain you even now.